Welcome to the Dave Witty Show. I'm your host, Dave Witty. Back again for another episode, folks. Thanks again for tuning in. Had a little break last week. I had uh, some dental work done and and uh, had to get some wisdom teeth pulled. So I was out of commission last week. Uh, back again, though, with another episode. Got another great guest today. Very, very interesting. Um, a friend of mine grew up with, uh, you know, for years in Mount Pearl playing sports together and stuff. Uh, his name is Mark Ballard. He actually scaled Mount Everest, which is, uh, you know, incredible, incredible feat. Uh, I mentioned this, you know, in the interview, I was following along his journey and, and everything that he was, uh, he was doing during the process, which, you know, it was no quick process by any means, but he had a tracking device, you know, where you could track his, his progress along the thing. And, and I meant, like I said, I mentioned it in the interview and I remember when he actually, uh, reached the summit, I, I was home watching sports center, which is, uh, uh, pretty hilarious because he was on top of Mount Everest. So yeah, make sure you do stick around for, for a great interview with Mark. I mean, uh, it gives some real great insight into, into, you know, uh, scaling Mount Everest. Uh, it's just a, a daunting feat of, of doing that. And, um, the mental or the mental and, and physical, uh, aspects that come along with that, uh, to get you there and, and to get you, uh, to get you to the top is just, uh, you know, incredibly astonishing really to, for, uh, for anybody to do that. So, uh, it was really great to catch up with Mark. Uh, he's actually he lives in Norway and, um, yeah, so we had a little chat. I um, we had a couple technical issues guys. So, uh, there's a couple little cuts in between the interview. I mean, I'm not sure what's going on with my zoom, but it's kind of happened last couple episodes I've been doing and um just had a couple dropouts there so it's it's edited a little bit weird the interview is hopefully not not too too bad but yeah just bear with me on uh, on that interview that interview process there um what's going on here we're back open again thank god I mean things are starting to seem a bit more normal here in Newfoundland uh, managed to, uh, get back to work a little bit. Um, did a few gigs last weekend, had a lot of fun. Uh, it was great. Played into, uh, golf shots in Mount Pearl. Uh, great little place to hang out and, and, uh, they got HD golf simulators in there. So you can actually go in and do a round of golf. Uh, you know, dart boards and ping pong tables. Pl- great place to watch sports as well. Uh, and Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, they have live music. Last week they had, uh, myself, um friday they had nick earl and saturday they had um i can't remember but maybe Derek graham but uh back there again this thursday as well so definitely looking forward to that uh friday i played at the newfoundland embassy um and if you have been following along on these podcasts with uh i interviewed nile who's one of the owners of of the Newfoundland Embassy. Had a great little gig down there Friday night. It was a lot of fun. Lots of uh, cool people around. And it was great to be able to actually perform in, in front of some uh, some real faces and, and real people. Um, back on the ice as well, which is really neat. Uh, played hockey on Friday. Played hockey last night as well. Recording this one here on Tuesday, April 13th. And played hockey last night. Took a little spill. Got a little sore hip today, but not too, too bad. I uh, was absolutely gassed. There's no doubt about that. Um, after a couple months of not really doing anything, drinking beer, hacking darts, uh, it was great to get out and uh, and um, you know hit the ice with the boys and and uh, and get a few laps in. Uh, needless to say, I, I'm I'm definitely definitely feeling it today. Uh, lots going on in the sporting world, guys. Um, you know I'm a big sports guy and I always like to give a little. Little chat about the uh, what's going on in the sports. Uh, watched the Masters this weekend, of course. You know, one of the uh, four majors that happens in the in the golf golf year um, was a little anticlimactic. You know, there with uh, on Sunday. You know, Sunday's usually a lot of fun on the Masters. Um, Hideki Matsuyama took it down, the first title from um, a Japanese, uh, sorry, anybody from Japan, yeah. Um, you know, so big congrats to him, obviously. But uh, one thing I found really neat was the pictures that were coming out the day after. I don't know if anybody's seen this, but they showed uh, Hideki sitting in the, uh, in the airport. If you don't know much about golf, the Masters tournament is probably the biggest tournament of the year. And what happens is you 
you obviously win the tournament and a, obviously a massive cash prize. Uh, but you also get a green jacket and it's been this thing that's, you know, gone on for years. So the previous winner will then, you know, don you with uh, a new green jacket um, that you get to take for a year. And then after that year, it actually goes into and it stays at, at you know, at the golf course in Augusta. And um uh, I've seen a funny picture of Hideki in the in the airport, you know, on a commercial flight, and he just has this green jacket, which is such a coveted coveted, you know, thing for 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 for, for golf uh, and PGA, and he just got it draped over his chair next to him, like it's you know, it's like it's uh, his spring jacket. Uh, I thought that was super super funny, but uh, still pretty neat, and always a lot of fun to watch the Masters for sure. Uh, NHL trade deadline happened. Uh, I mean, lots gone on with the Leafs. Let's okay. I'm gonna break it down. If you got no time for the Leafs, skip through the next three to four minutes because I'm gonna talk about the Leafs because not only the trade deadline, but just the run we've been on. I mean, I obviously never did an episode last week, so I didn't really get to break it down much. But uh, Leafland has been looking promising right now. I mean, I know this is a thing. I you know my buddies always give me shit over it because. Every year, everyone, you know, the Leafs go on a little run and everyone, every Leaf fan is, yeah, we got the cup, playing the parade. But I mean, the Leafs have really assembled this team. Kyle Dubas has really put it together this year. Um, you know, between the the, the, the forward group and, and the defense and, 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 the, and the goaltending, which is, you know, Jack Campbell, this guy, I, I mean, I've, I've said on previous podcasts how much I've been rooting for him. Uh, just such a positive guy. Looks like he really, really loves the game, loves being in Toronto, loves the guys around him. Um, and, you know, Saturday night he, he, he won the game and, and, and now holds the NHL record for the most consecutive starts uh, at 11 in a row uh, with wins. So, I mean, uh, really, really incredible. The Leafs lost last night. It was a tough one. Against Montreal, uh, Jack's first loss of the year. But um, <laughs> I, I read a funny thing about Sheldon Keefe, who's the head coach of of the Leafs, said that, that they flew into Montreal or, or traveled to Montreal the day before so that they could watch the Masters. So me and my buddies were kind of talking about it. And I'd say that the boys had a little hangover yesterday going into that uh, into that game against, uh, against Montreal. And uh, they were definitely slow moving there yesterday. Um... The trade deadline obviously happened uh, yesterday as well. The Leafs picked up a couple key pieces there. Nick Felino, I mean, this guy adds a ton of grit, uh, experience. He's been a captain for six years in Columbus. Uh, going to be a great locker room guy, and he's going to add just a ton of depth to that roster. Uh, they picked up a goalie, David Riddick, from Calgary, uh, who's going to just be another piece. You know, he's going to be another depth piece to our goaltending situation because. Who knows what the hell is going on with Freddie Anderson? Kyle Dubas is not really not given any any insight into it whatsoever. Uh, but they got David Riddick, who's uh, you know he's a, he's a pretty decent goaltender. And uh, one of the funniest things about the, uh, this David Riddick move was that um, it, it well it's tonight it's Tuesday. The Leafs are actually playing Calgary tonight, uh, and for you guys listening, will be last night. But Riddick actually flew to Toronto last night with Calgary, who he had been traded from. Uh, just a really weird situation. I mean, COVID has brought so many of these weird situations, and, and that probably being one of them. And I was watching an interview today, and the boys said they were all kind of giving him chirps and not letting him play cards on the plane today. And and funny enough, it looks like he's starting tonight. I mean, I haven't really got a confirmation on that, but it really appears like that's what's going to be uh, the case. So uh, that's going to be an interesting start tonight. So really looking forward to that. Uh, and I'm sure you guys, uh, if you watched it, you know, you'll, uh, you've probably appreciated it as well. Uh, lots of big moves there going on. Boston made a couple big moves. I mean, they got Taylor Hall, like, uh, it's going to be crazy to see what happens there. Uh, they're probably going to try to make a run here now and try to make it to the playoffs. I mean, I think they're, I think they're in fourth spot in their division right now with, uh, so they're, they're in a playoff spot. So, you know, they just added some key pieces there as well. So going to be really, really interesting to see how this all plays out down the, down the line here. Um, the Leafs have been rolling. 
lost one last night against uh, Montreal. So, I mean, we just got to get back in the saddle here now. Once we get all these guys through quarantine and, and all that stuff, it's going to be a real new new lineup. Uh, new, You know, not a brand new lineup, obviously, but a couple new new members to the lineup. And going to be uh, pretty interesting to see how it all comes together. And you know me, as a diehard Leafs fan, I am super, super excited. I'm just super pumped. Uh, I think they really have got a team together. They're a, a wagon. I mean, they're just so strong up front, so strong defensively. Uh, goaltending has been fantastic. So, yeah, just uh, heavy on the Leafs train, heavy on the Leafs train. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's not much really to say about the Raps. The Raps are kind of uh, in tank, tank mode, it, it kind of seems like. Um, and the Jays are back. The boys of summer are back. Really, really excited about the Jays. I mean, I've always been a huge Leafs Jays guy. Love the Raps, obviously, as well. But uh, I've, I've really, really loved the uh, the Jays and, and the Leafs. And, and the, the Jays are back. It's a weird season. They've started in Dunedin, Florida as their home base. Whereas if anybody who doesn't know or doesn't follow baseball a whole lot, it's where um, Toronto actually does their spring training. Obviously, with the government regulations and stuff that's going on, they haven't been able to um, to play at home at home in Toronto. So they started in Dunedin. Uh, they started off a little hot, and now they've kind of gone a little cold again. That's the that's the weird thing with baseball is there's games every day, so it doesn't take long to to pick up a few losses in a row. Uh, a lot of these young guys have looked great. Um, yeah, I mean, just looking forward to a good good Jay season again. Um, but yeah, anyways, I'll leave it there on the, on the sports chatter and, uh, you know what? I'm going to send it over to, uh, to an interview with Mark Ballard. Who's, uh, if not the first, maybe the second of, um, Newfoundlanders to ever, um, to ever go over, get up to the top of Everest. I mean, Mount Everest, who, who pff, I can't even imagine. So yeah, we'll send it over to Mark Ballard. And I'd like to welcome Mark Ballard to the podcast. How you doing, Mark? Thanks for coming on today. Uh, how's everything, man? How you doing? Hey, Dave. Thanks for thanks for having me. I'm doing good, buddy. How about yourself? I'm uh, doing great, man. Uh, to be honest with you, today is the first day that it hasn't been raining in about 15 days, and that's not a word of exaggeration. It's been, and not just like gray, foggy Newfoundland weather, like absolutely piss pouring downpours for like 14 straight days, man, and. The sun is actually out for like, it came out about an hour ago. So I was like, just out on the deck. I could feel the heat on my back and it felt great, man. So how's everything with you? Um, for anybody who, who doesn't know Mark Ballard, of course, maybe you could give a little, little brief uh, rundown on, on who you are and kind of what you do. Yeah. So uh, like you said, my name is Mark Ballard. I, I grew up in, in Mount Pearl, actually together with you, Dave, we went to high school together, played basketball and, and hockey together. Or tried to anyway, um, and then I uh, I went to I went to did engineering at uh, at Mon, and then uh, ten years ago I, I moved to Norway, so I'm I'm still living here now. I uh, I'm located in in Stavanger. I've done a I've lived in a little few places internationally, but been located here for for ten years. And I'm actually Dave. You said about the rain, so I live in a place. I actually moved from Newfoundland to a place with more rain. Oh my! If you God. can believe that. So I think I think the year that I moved here, it rained 160 days in a row. So I don't oh. really feel that bad for you. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough, man. I, I all good, man. No, no worries. So um, you've been living in Norway for like 10 years, you say roughly? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and what kind of, yeah, and what kind of work do you do? What, what made you move to Norway? So I moved. I, I'm a, I'm an engineer. Uh, I work, uh, I work for Equinor. So they, uh, you know, when I, uh, I always liked to travel and stuff when I was, when I was younger and I was kind of always eyeing a little bit Europe. Um, and I did, I had an oil and gas background from, from months. So, uh, I moved over here to work with, with Equinor, who's the kind of the national oil company here and they have uh, stuff going on in Newfoundland. Uh, so I think a lot of people are probably familiar with them. Uh, but yeah, they, uh, they offered me a job and I wanted to move to Europe. So so it kind of went hand in hand, and I've I've been stuck here ever since. Yeah, no doubt. That's uh, that's pretty neat, man. Um, you mentioned traveling a lot. Like I, I was doing a little. Obviously, I know you pretty well. I mean, like we're friends, and we grew up, uh, you know, over the years together playing sports and all that kind of stuff. But I was doing a little background check because you know one of the main reasons I wanted to have you uh, have you on today is you know you climbed Everest. I mean, I, I, am I right in saying you're the second person from Newfoundland to do that? 
I'm actually really not sure. I've heard second. I've heard first, second, and third. I, okay, I'm not I couldn't second, figure third. that I actually either. have no idea. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't quite figure that either. But one neat thing before we even chat about Everest, one neat thing I, I seen about you today was, you've been to 94 countries. 94, yeah. 94 countries. You've swam with great sharks in Africa. You've hiked the Amazon jungle in the Congo with mountain gorillas, and you've also reached the top of Mount Everest. I mean, that's amazing, dude. Like uh, 94 countries. Uh, like, uh, how does that even happen? It's actually really weird, man. It's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, I could talk about it all day. Of course, it's, it's been kind of strange. You know, I had a really good buddy. You knew, you knew him growing up, uh, Ryan Earl. And him, I used to travel a little bit with him and, you know, obviously like normal spots when you're in high school, like, you know, we, we went, uh, did a road trip on the East coast of the U S watching baseball games. And we, we went to a couple of places down South with, with his parents when we were younger. And it just kind of hit me that, that, that like, I loved being in other places. And, and since then, you know, moving here, I, I'm not a person, I don't like to go back to places more than once. So I, I kind of just look for stuff that I, is new that'll be a new kind of adventure for me whether it's an adventure or not it's about you know meet new people see new things and i don't know i just got bitten by the bug and i've been lucky enough in the job that i have it's been pretty flexible in, in terms of time off and and even me traveling with work and you know it's just kind of gone from there and and then to me it's it's about the adventure what can i do that kind of uh, looks cool to me it's kind of the primary primary goal so stuff like that so like the swimming with the sharks and stuff like that it's just uh, to look for yeah no that's uh that's yeah super super neat i mean i guess like that, that that's got to be a huge advantage to being you know in norway and europe as travel is probably so much more easier affordable uh quicker to get to obviously you can travel to a ton of different places quickly as opposed you know say being in newfoundland whereas you'd have to obviously fly across the pond or if you're going south or, or whatever but i mean that must be uh a big advantage to to being where you are for for traveling yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm in the most accessible place, nor is up north, but it, it's, it's mind blowing. You know, we get, we can get on a flight to London or Copenhagen and be there in an hour and then, you know, an hour stop and we can go anywhere in the world. Right. So it's, yeah, uh, yeah. it's, it's amazing how easy it is to get from here. And, and as you said, the cheapness, you know, I don't live in a place, uh, unfortunately, where we get these like $10 flights, but they're still, you know, it's, it's cheaper for, for me to fly to like Thailand than it would be for you to fly to Toronto. It's uh, a, yeah. it's, it's pretty crazy to flight situation in and out of Newfoundland. It is. It's absolutely, especially now, man. I mean, they're after hauling out a lot of the flights right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming they'll come back. Like who are we kidding here now, but with COVID and everything, I mean, there's pretty much nearly impossible you got to fly to Halifax. I think now first, even to even really go anywhere, which is, uh, which has been, Norway's pretty expensive, right? Like, I mean, like, Oh, that- Norway is uh, it, it, it's cheaper sometimes if you want to go on a, a booze trip for a weekend it's probably cheaper to like uh, get a flight go to Copenhagen and drink there than it is it's, uh, it's a pretty crazy place you know when I first moved here I went to uh, I went to the rest to the grocery store first and uh, I think I was going to buy bread and like turkey breast or something like that for a sandwich and it was something like 15 bucks or something and then I I went to the bar that night just to kind of see what it was about. And the beer was like 17 or $18 for a, <laughs> for a pint. And it was just mind blowing. I mean, see. I guess, I guess as a, let's say like a, a tourist in Norway, I mean, that would obviously come as a shock, but I, I guess as a resident uh, who's lived there for a while, I guess it does it equal itself out after a while. Like once you start working there and living there and, and earning there. Or is it still just yeah, so I mean, <laughs> I mean, sometimes you look at things and you're still like, oh, God, this is ridiculous. But it does even out. Like, there's some stuff that's super cheap here. You know, electricity, for example, is way cheaper here than, like, anywhere else you see in the world. And then stuff is, like, but the majority is crazy expensive. But what I like to look at it is, like you said, I travel a lot. So there's nowhere you can go that's more expensive. So everywhere you go, you kind of feel like, oh, I'm getting a deal here. Oh, yeah, oh, that's, yeah, that's a good money. way. So, try and look at the positives, I think. But, uh, you know, as a Norwegian, they're, they're like, oh, this is normal. It's so, uh, it's so easy. And I just uh, still get some head scratches sometimes. Yeah, I bet. That's a hilarious way. I never really thought of it like that. It's kind of like everywhere else you go, it's kind of you're on a discount thing, which is, <laughs> I mean, that works out great. Have you been doing any traveling in the last year or so, or you kind of been just pretty much stuck to Norway? Honestly, man, nothing whatsoever. I've done like took quite a bit in in Norway. Obviously, we kind of have the same. You know, they're 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 promoting a lot of these staycations, and 
and we do the same. I, I was supposed to go last year on my hundredth country. So that was like supposed to go to Fiji and Vanuatu, Samoa, all these places in the Pacific. And, uh, and that got shit canned. And after that, it's been, uh, they have pretty strict rules here for entry and uh, coming and going. And then, uh, yeah, it's just almost been impossible to, to go anywhere. We were chatting a little bit there just, uh, just a minute before we, uh, we started recording here, but we're chatting a little bit about the COVID situation in Norway. Can you just give a, describe that a little bit and how it's been like, are, is there major lockdowns or, you know, what's uh, how's, how's that been working out? So, so where I live actually, it's kind of weird. If you look at a map, even of Europe, the, the, the city that we live in is, is probably one of the fifth or sixth safest regions in all of Europe. So we've been, I've been really lucky for, for where we are, but no, Norway is kind of a, it's a place where like it, it, everyone or nothing. So the rules apply to any, everyone. It doesn't matter if you're in a safe place or so it, it's, it's blanket across the, the country. So some of the places have been bad and that's kind of caused our regulations to go up. But I mean, it's, it's a weird place because if you, the way they are, they don't really make rules, but they just say, don't do this. And then everyone listens. It's kind of the Norwegian way. It's, it's quite cool to see where they're like, please don't do this. And just everyone stops. Yeah, but, uh, you know, it, it's been it's gotten harsher lately. I think you know we we haven't had we haven't been able to go to a pub like unless you're you're eating with, with food. You can't you haven't been able to get a beer in like three four months. And even now, even the restaurants are completely closed. So they're going to reopen again on Friday. I think we've been about a month and a bit without uh, without restaurants uh, being open. So it's, it's been hit or miss. I think, but overall, I think we've been kind of lucky where I am. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's crazy, man. I mean, you know, it's 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 kind of been a this this process. I mean, with everybody, you know, here's in Newfoundland and Canada and stuff, and obviously you see the cases again arising again in Ontario and BC. And it's just like, come on, man, get this fucking thing over with. Like, just want it to be done, man, so people can get out and get on the move. Myself included, man. I want to hit the road again, and you know what I mean. I got some new music and stuff. I want to get put out and and hit the road. And I'm sure you got the travel bug as well. Um, one of the main things I, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to get you on today is like I previously mentioned, you've done an incredible feat, man. Like you're, you climbed Everest. I mean, not an average day thing, you know, I mean the traveling and, and swimming with sharks and yada, yada, all this stuff. Don't get me wrong. I mean, crazy in itself, but obviously has been done by a ton of different people, but, uh, to do Mount Everest, I mean, must've just been a, a crazy, crazy adventure, um, like you say, we, we couldn't quite figure, I couldn't figure out if, if you had been the first or the second, but regardless, it's, it's a, a pretty, pretty daunting feat. Um, can you give us a little insight into where your headspace was at with even thinking about doing something like that? Was it, was like the hiking and, and, and mountain climbing something you were into, you know, kind of growing up, or was it just something that you just decided you were interested in doing or how, how you know, what was the, the, the thought process behind that? I think it's, a, it's, a, it's almost a long story. I guess, you know, when we grew up in uh, in Newfoundland, like, I mean, like hiking, what was that? East Coast Trail wasn't around. I mean, no, who, who did that? I mean, the longest hike was like walking home from St. Peter's. <laughs> but it didn't start here. It didn't start in Newfoundland. Now when I go back, I, I love to do it, right? You know, you have these trails and stuff and you can get, get out, even like Signal Hill, I'll kind of do like a weird route off it or something. But, you know, I, I think it had to start when I was here. You know, I remember the first time that, that I moved here, I went for, what I wouldn't even consider a hike at the moment. It takes me like 15 minutes to get up. And the first time I went, I was like, why are you people doing this? This is so crazy. What am I doing here on a Saturday? And that, now it's like, I look at it as a joke. But uh, but it, it kind of stayed was a weird story because I, I got lucky, I think, getting into the climbing because I uh, I was supposed to 10 years, nine years ago or something, I was supposed to go with the, with a girl here that I met to South America and we broke up like three weeks before the trip. We just decided, ah, we're not going to go on this trip. Let's just end it. And I had all the time booked off work. I really wanted to go. I really wanted to travel anyway. And I, I was, you talked about all my traveling. So I was like, I got four weeks off. I'm going somewhere. I'm not, uh, I'm not sitting at home. And I was just asking some friends. And one guy had this group of friends had the exact time booked off that, uh, that I was going. And they were going to Africa. So they were doing East Africa and they were doing Kilimanjaro in the beginning. And then basically we, we drove or we, we stayed in tents from, from Tanzania or from Ken, the Kenyan border all the way down to Johannesburg in South Africa to like seven countries. So I was like, for me, that was like game on. I'm in, I'm, in, I'm doing it. And so we did Kilimanjaro in the beginning. And, you know, I hadn't obviously trained for anything. It was just new. And, you know, I kind of, 
I found it quite easy. We did a pretty quick route. We were up in three days, which is, which is quite, it's not crazy, but it's, it's quite quick for there and had no real feeling of the altitude or anything. And I think once you get the height, you know, I was kind of like, okay, I can do this. Maybe, you know, maybe I can go a little bit higher. And then I got the opportunity to go to Nepal the first time after that. And, and I did kind of maybe a more, yeah, obviously Kilimanjaro is a height, right? You don't really get on any ice. There's no, you don't need crampons. So I, I figured, okay, let me try that in Nepal. And I did that and I love that. And the same thing. And I got to see the, the, the beauty of Nepal with, you know, being in these valleys that have mountains that tower, tower over you, like 3,000 meters, like three kilometers. You can look up. It's incredible to see those sites. And it just kind of hit me from there. So I think that's where I kind of got the Everest idea when I did that first, first mound was like 6,000 meters. And then I just started building up to it. So it took like, uh, you know, I, I started the next mountain I did was 7,000. And I kind of went for a pretty difficult and really cold 6,000 meter mountain. And, and that's when I, you know, I kind of said, okay, now I think I can do it. So I think long story short, that's kind of how I got there. And into that headspace was, was just, you know, I, I first decided the height was what I liked and I, I wanted to see those views. And then it was, you know, just about you know, building up to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> burnt. <laughs> That's uh, crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff. What What's something you do to prepare for for that? Like, uh, actually, first off, I want to ask you, how long does the <clears throat> say from the day you start in until the day you leave? How long? What is that process? How long is that process? So I was there from the from the time I about I think it was seven and a half weeks. From the time okay. I landed till the time I got out of there, or from the time we started hiking, actually, I was there a couple of days early and left a couple of days late, but about seven and a half weeks total. And and in, how do you in the valley? How do you, and how do you prepare for something like that? Like, are you at home in Norway preparing and getting things together, or is it something you do when you get there? I I think it it goes back to that you know building up to it. So it, it's kind of there's one thing I think a lot of people what they think is the physical part, and and that's a big part of it. Don't get me wrong, you need to train. But I, the, the bigger part is the preparation. You need to figure out, you know, what equipment works for you, what, you know, gear you want to take, what feels good. So even stuff like, you know, what backpack works for your back, what socks work for your feet so you're not blistering. If you're blistering, it's 7,500 meters. You're fucked. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's that simple. Exactly. Small injuries become big pretty quick. So, so I think the buildup is a lot of it. And so these people that kind of just go and try an 8,000 meter mountain are suicidal. In my opinion, it, it is a little bit about the history. So you kind of get used to everything in terms of getting ready for it. By that time I had my, you know, my gear fine tuned. I knew exactly what I needed. I had all the equipment anyway. So it was no, I wouldn't say the preparation was that much. It's about making a list at that point then and, and knowing what you want, but even simple things, Dave, like the food, what, what food can your body handle at, you know, at altitude and, you know, at extreme, you know, when you're, when you're not eating and drinking very much. So I actually almost messed that up on Everest because I tried to use these like goo gels. I use them a lot when I like biking, but I could not stomach those things up there. And it was really bad. It, it was disgusting almost. You couldn't trying to stomach get them, in, them because, but you live and you learn. And, how, what was the reason behind not stomaching because of the altitude or because, is, there, is that what it was? And I was, it's hard to say. It just wasn't yeah. mixing well in my body. Right, right, it just yeah. like I couldn't, I, I physically couldn't swallow them. It, it Crazy. Just, you're tired and, you know, your body just reacts to certain things differently. And yeah. that's the way. So you need to be really careful. The food you need to bring. And it's actually a funny story. The, the lead guy that's there, he swears by this routine that when they ask him what he brings to when he climbs high mountains, he brings 20 kilos, like 45 pounds of Swedish fish. That's what his body loves and it's what he can eat easily because they just, you can just swallow them. Sure. And that's all, that's all he'll eat on, on the whole, you know, course and he'll eat some different meals and stuff and when he's in the tent, but that's his go-to. And uh, I, I don't have something crazy like that, but, uh, yeah. but that's his, his thing. And that's what he does. But of course on the physical part, you know, it, it was, that's something different and anyone can do the physical part. So for me, it was, you know, I, I started six months and then I was extremely, you know, I did three hours a day every day for six months, like two hour, two hours of cardio and an hour of, of weights every day. And, uh, and like, no, no alcohol, you know, eating right, basically what it was. So it's, it's not, it wasn't easy, but you know, you, you need to put that in, but it's not something, you know, anyone can kind of pick up the physical part. I think it's the mental part, the preparation. And then, and then it's what you kind of said, you know, being ready for seven weeks, living in a tent, not having a toilet, 
Yeah. I wanted, you know? I wanted to ask you, like, what are actually some of the actual physical things that you bring with you for that? I mean, like, obviously you got your, your clothing and stuff, but what kind of other things do you bring like that you've, you definitely, it was super necessary. And was there any things that you might've brought that you probably didn't use? You might've thought you, you would need. Yeah. So, so I think, I think for me, you bring as little as possible because every weight, I mean, it, you, you kind of see it as some, some people say, you know, like a pound at here is literally 20 pounds up there. And it's true. You, you really want to minimize the weight too. I think at that point I'd fine tuned what I needed. So I don't think I brought anything that I really didn't need, but you know, there's some things that you kind of get, get used to. Like I still bring uh, like, um, you know, like a hot water bottle. It's insulated. I put it in my sleeping bag. So I, I put it with like boiling hot water in the night and that'll keep your sleeping bag warm for at least six or seven hours. So that's something that I kind of picked up along the way. And then there's some stuff that you really need. Like I, I bring this like rock tape with me because my fingers cut music. So like even simple stuff, like I have an old iPod that I bring everywhere because the battery never goes in it. And I keep my phone for, you know, taking pictures so there's some stuff like that. You need the music, but but in terms of, I don't think there's anything crazy that people bring on this stuff that's uh, it's like, oh wow, did, did we think of that? You kind of get used to stuff along yeah. the way. Yeah, yeah, and 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 obviously, like you had mentioned, you're definitely trying to minimize the weight that you're bringing. You're not going bringing anything. You're not going bringing any just in cases. I'm sure you've probably got like you know, like you said, you've got it fine tuned. You've been you've been been working on it and stuff. Um, I seen you did have a beer on the top of the mountain. Is that true? Is that was that on the top of the mountain? I no, it wasn't on top. It was at okay. base camp, so it's still okay. 5,500 meters. Yeah, but sure. yeah, I brought. Uh, I was lucky enough actually to get uh, get a couple of Molson shipped over to me in Norway, and they made the long trek in with me. So uh, <laughs> when I got down, I gave one to my Sherpa and one to me, and we uh, we crushed that to celebrate. And uh, after six months of uh, of uh, not drinking and 28 hours basically of moving and uh, being pretty dehydrated, it was a pretty. I was pretty drunk after about half of the beer. <laughs> You mentioned groups. Um, another couple of things I was reading on, on some of the articles and stuff that uh, you were part of, uh, you know, obviously uh, you had a little bit of media coverage and stuff after you'd come back down, especially here in Newfoundland and stuff. And um, you had mentioned like there's, there's several groups on the mountain I, I, at the same time, you know, different tour groups and stuff, right? Like what kind of challenges does that present? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, obviously as, as I would say is almost all, ways of travel has like gotten easier and, 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 you know, the world has become accessible that there's no difference in, in Everest, right? I mean, there's more and more uh, groups that, that, that do it. And I mean, I think the first part is, is, is the coordination, right? So when I, I can't even begin to tell you how many groups there were last year, how many there normally is, there's, there is quite a few. Um, and they come from all different backgrounds. So you, you kind of have some private groups. You have groups like us, which like IMG, the one that I was with, is like one of the more famous ones that you'll hear about. You know, they were the ones on Discovery Channel. They've had like reality shows uh, on uh, on them where they followed them up the mountain. And then you have, you know, the ones that have been in the movies and stuff like that, this Alpine Ascents and stuff. And then you have some smaller teams. You might have like army training teams. You might have like, you know, a national team that just kind of is a mismatch people. So it's all varies. There's no one way to call what a team is. I mean, there's, there's many different ones. But I think on the challenging part, you know, when there's obviously less teams, they can coordinate a bit more. And you see, you know, especially the day that I was there, you see that line and, and what happened. And, you know, there's been, I mean, that's been completely all over, over the media. And, and, and that's, of course, the biggest challenge that it caused. So for us, it was, you know, there's lots of reasons. I think a lot of people have stuck on the, on the fact that, there were so many people and, and that's a part of it. Don't get me wrong, but usually the groups are, they can coordinate with each other for the most part. And they can say, you know, we want, we're going to go for this day. We're going to go for that day. We're going to try and minimize it. And the, the, the day that we went, you know, or the year that we went, there was only really three, four days that you could summit. The weather was horrible that year. One of the worst years in, in history. And, you know, if I just take an example, the, the year before, there was like three weeks that you could summit on, three year, weeks of good weather. When we went, there was four days. So instead of having all these groups spread out over three weeks, they had to cram people into, into three days. And you can always make the argument, should you have gone? But we all knew the risks. We all knew it was coming. I mean, we knew that line was going to happen since, you know, two days before. We knew what groups were going. So uh, I think it's the big thing is the coordination. And, and 
when you have so many, it can be done, but it, it just becomes more and more challenging to try and keep the people spread out. Yeah. And then I think the, the, the next challenge, of course, is, is the quality. And I really think that goes back to the government of Nepal. You know, some of the groups are, are very, my group, for example, you know, we had to, we had to interview just to get into process. We had to have like a seat, like a resume of our climbing where they, you know, picked us apart really. And they said, there was a, a mandate for it, right? You know, we had to climb, we were timed when we climbed early to make sure that we would be able to do it. And I think a lot of the more famous or, or bigger, you know, bigger named groups, they are all like that. But then you also have these kind of, you know, cheaper outfits that, you know, without being too controversial, generally are like the Nepalese ones or from that region that are just offering like the most basics. And they're kind of in it for the money. They, they, they're as low cost as possible, so they're not making a profit. But then they're also trying to get people as many as they can to make a profit. And I think that's where the government really needs to step in and say, you know, you can't do that. Maybe even a minimum price needs to be charged. Mm-hmm. And then... Of course, did they need the mandate as well that a you know a background needs to be done on everyone? So I think they did do that after the year that I, that I climbed. From what I've heard, is that they are mandating that a, you know you need to have reached a certain height before you're allowed to attempt it. You need to have done a certain amount of climbs, and I think that's you know that's part of the answer. But but definitely those two on the groups for sure is is the quality of people and and the coordination. Can you give us a little rundown? kind of what goes on for the seven weeks? I mean, you know, not on a day-to-day basis, but, you know, how does, what kind of happens? Like, obviously you go to base camp, you travel up, travel down, up, down. Is there there stuff like that that's happening? I mean, you're, I read Into Thin Air years ago, and I mean, I think that's based on. uh, True story. Yeah, yeah. I know that John Krakauer, I can't, I don't know how you say his last name. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I read that years ago and just super, super interested in it. And I think that's what the Everest movie is based on, I think as well. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, Correct. Like, can you, can you give us a little rundown on on the process of of what actually happens when you get there? Yeah. So, so, I mean, first of all, it's just to get to the base camp on the Nepalese side, it's a 65 kilometer hike in and it's (laughs) 2,500 meters up. So so it's like, it's like a hike. it's like a hike to Whitburn. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. So, so you got you got that, and and generally you take that quite slow. I mean, you know, it, 10, 65 kilometers. People can argue you do that in a couple of days, but at altitude you take your time. So that's about that's the first two weeks, and then we climbed a, a six thousand meter peak just as a warm up climb. So that was you know there you get another five six days. So you're kind of into your almost third week at that point before you're even settled in the base camp you go up and touch base camp and come back to climb that one but so you're three weeks kind of even before you get ready to settle in and then and then when you're there you know if you've seen the movie you know it you don't you don't just go from base camp to the summit down that you know some people have done that but they are like ultra athletes Mm -hmm. um and they have trained at altitude before i mean your body would just completely die if you try that so you need to acclimatize and at least the, the most efficient way to acclimatize is, is to go up and down. So the, the general rule, no matter if you're doing Everest or if you're doing even like Kilimanjaro, they, they, they recommend that you go up and then come down and sleep. So go high, come down, sleep. Go up high, sleep. So never, never sleep at kind of your highest point or minimize it as much as possible. So we, what we do is what we call rotations, you know. So we did – we went up to Camp 1, touched Camp 1 and came down. So we didn't actually sleep anywhere. We just – went up camp one, back down, slept, take a couple of days. Then we go to camp two, sleep at camp two, come back down, sleep again down at base camp. So again, you're getting that lower feeling and, and kind of the lower when you go up and come down and your body will be able to climb to us a little bit better. Then we did, you know, camp two, camp three, back down, and then we were up back. So camp three is around 7,200 meters or so, if I'm not mistaken. And then we went for it so then you go base camp camp two camp three camp four which is your 7900 you're almost 8000 meter to death zone and then up to the summit then back down so if each rotation takes you you know a couple of them are were short but most rotations probably will take you between five five days and seven days so that's kind of how you get to that seven weeks pretty quick one thing i was asking you about the water like what's the water situation like you bring water in or how's that how's that work 
so so the the base camp itself is on a glacier so uh, there it's uh, you know the, the sherpas have gone up uh, way before we get there and uh, the good sherpas find the good spots that hopefully uh, all the all the animals haven't shit in and uh, <laughs> they basically just take the water from the glacier and and uh, and boil it so it's uh, it's boiling in any mountain regardless of Everest is boiling water 24 hours a day um, and then as you go higher then it then it is about the boiling so you know the good thing about most of these mountains is it's snow uh, you know, you're always climbing on ice and snow. So it's just about the digging the snow and, uh, and boiling it and drinking it. So it's a very, it's, uh, it's the same thing every day when you get into camp, boil the water, drink it. <laughs> you mentioned shit. Uh, I, I was reading something on Everest that apparently Everest has like 8,000 kilos of human shit on it. <laughs> Like it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me it wouldn't surprise me Dave you know it's honestly I, I just read that. that I was I was just reading some stuff on Everest this morning about it I and uh, that was one of the things like that came up and uh, it was like how do you use the washroom up there or you obviously you're not using a washroom like you know what I mean with obviously without providing too many details like you know obviously it's an everyday normal thing for any human being like how does that how does that work I mean that would be an issue I think that most people would probably that would be a a, a thing that they would think about you know. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty gross, but, uh, but it is the way it is. So in the base camp, like at base camp where we spend a lot of the time there, there's just a big bucket. <laughs> Crazy, man. And that's it. <laughs> goes in there. Um, and then, I mean, when you're climbing, you're climbing. There's not yeah. much you can do. It's, uh, it just goes on the side. You just have to go when you have to. And uh, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, the, the, the manufacturers, the suits are quite smart. You actually have, uh, I have a bum pocket. <laughs> oh, nice. So, so I can just unzip my, uh, unzip my ass. But sometimes you got to do it. But, you know, it's, it's actually funny that you say that because I've, I've also climbed in, in Denali. That's in Alaska. And there it's actually illegal to do that. So you have to carry your own shit. <laughs> that's so what I was reading. And you I, carry it. I was reading something today, and I think that's what they're saying. That I, apparently that's a big thing is that you have to carry it out of uh, out of Everest right now, which is <laughs> wowzers, man. That's crazy. Well, the, the, the worst part about Denali is when you carry it back, they actually weigh it. So if you if you have some delta on your weighing, they fine you heavily. <laughs> so oh, you my can't God. even miss one. It's uh, God, it's pretty impressive. Man. I don't know how to come up with a calculation for how much shit you should have, but uh, I'd, I'd be interested in knowing that. I don't, I don't want to know that calculation. Uh, Mark, you mentioned the Sherpas. Can you, can you maybe describe to folks listening what a Sherpa is and, and what their job entails? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, a Sherpa is essentially, you know, I think a lot of people just mistake a Sherpa for being Nepalese. And, and I think if you go there, one of the misconceptions is, you know, probably anyone will call themselves a Sherpa and be like, yes, I can bring you wherever. Uh, but the Sherpas themselves, they, they are from the, this Kumbu, which is the valley in Everest. That's where the majority of them are from. Some are from Tibet, some are from China, but the majority have, have come there. And, and that's kind of from back back in like the 13th, 14th centuries. You know, they, they, they were, you know, these nomadic uh, traders that just settled in that valley. Um, so that's kind of the history on them. So to be a, a Sherpa, like that, that's a name, right? So that's the last name. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're born, you know, if you're born there, that, that's the Sherpa name. And in terms of what they do, you know, there's a lot of different tasks the Sherpa has. I think, you know, the misconception and, you know, what the movie show and especially the Everest movie that you talked about was, you know, they just carry you off the mountain if you can't get there and, and that they definitely don't, at least I, I, I didn't see it. Um, so, but some of them have different tasks, you know, like some Sherpas are responsible for say, like building a, a campsite. So, uh, you know, they might be the ones, you know, build, putting up the tents or, you know, I mentioned the water. Some of the Sherpas are the ones they might boil the water. Um, if, uh, in, in certain camps and certain camps, you know, we'll do that. And, you know, other ones, you know, most of Everest is, if you've seen that movie, you know, 90% of it is rope, right. And, uh, cause a lot of it is exposed. Mm -hmm. uh, or majority of it is exposed and so there are certain sherpas that their job is to rope the rope the climb um and then of course I, I think what most people wonder about is like the the sherpa so i i climbed with a one-to-one -one sherpa so i had my own sherpa the entire time and uh you know again he's not he doesn't carry your stuff for you he doesn't do that he's your climbing partner right so of course he's much more uh strong in the climbing and much better a climber than i'll ever be 
Um, and he, he's, you know, he's your guide. He's your support. He's your guide uh, up the mountain. Make sure that, you know, I think a lot of people think you're guided on a rope and you just go from A to B. It's not really that simple. Um, and of course, you know, he's, he's there to, to support you. So when you're tired and you might make a mistake, he, he'll notice it right away. Mm-hmm. And it, it's quite good. So incredible, man. What a job. And, <laughs> yeah, they are. I, I have to say the one I definitely recommend anyone, like if you ever get a chance to go to Nepal, go up the Valley, even if you're not going to climb Everest, but the nicest, friendliest people, and they'll do anything for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just an incredible human beings so friendly and and of course you know i don't think anyone's probably better at their job than than the sherpas they're machines on the mountain yeah no doubt you mentioned that it was you had a one-on-one so he was with you the whole like the whole seven weeks essentially yeah so well i mean when you're in base so it's maybe not that that straightforward he i didn't get i you know we did like i said before you know the three weeks in i, I didn't i hadn't met him by then but on the climbs, once I entered, you know, the ice fall, I guess you've seen right, that, right, the, right. the notorious ice fall. Once you're in there and up, yeah, he's he's kind of always with you. I mean, you know, we don't, uh, some tents we sleep in, but we're not sleeping in the same tents. Right? So there is a little bit, but when we're climbing, always together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and of course, I mean, they, we all stay at the same camp, so we, we see each other and all that. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, at the end of the day, when you're climbing in mountains like that, you, you trust each other with, with your lives. I'm sure I trusted him with my life a lot more than he trusted me with his, but... Uh, <laughs> But he, uh, you know, a guy that I have to say over seven weeks, he, he makes such a strong bond. And, and he, he's quite something. So my Sherpa, he was 22, and it was his fifth time on the summit. So Yeah, I was uh, going to ask you how many times. 22, he's been up there five times. Crazy. Yeah. And he comes, you know, his father, his father was climbing that year. I think he he, he didn't summit uh, because his client didn't summit. But uh, it was his 20, I think he had summited 20. 17 or 18 times before or something so wow they're pretty special when you think you can only summit once a year it's uh, it's pretty impressive that uh, that they're ringing off that many yeah no doubt um a few things i was i was uh learning about uh with with uh doing something like this is you know the, the daunting feat of obviously getting up this hill <laughs> hill i say getting up the mountain but a lot of it I hear is, is coming back down is, is a very tough, tough part of it all too. Can you talk a little bit about that as well, Mark, about like coming down once you had finally, you know, reached the top? Yeah, I, I'd say uh, no doubt, David, the, the scariest and easily the most dangerous part is going down. So, you know, I think that's, you need to have that mentality. I mean, when I got to the top, yeah, it was, it was amazing and all that, but right away you need to, your brain needs to switch to get down. And, you know, I think a lot of people might be surprised at that. It does get easier. So the, the, the way when you go down, you gain more oxygen and that helps you. But, yeah. you know, when you go up, you're, you're, you're generally a lot safer. I mean, if you think about try to try to go up a hill and then try and run down it, what, mm-hmm. what's the chances? Where are you going to fall? Generally never going up. So, I mean, not many people die from falling. Don't get me wrong, but you get injured very easily yeah. going down. So, you know, and, and, and the other thing, the other thing is, so, why is it dangerous? Because people overexert themselves to get to the top. So once you're there, there's no rescue. You're not getting out of there. So if, if you've pushed yourself past your limit, can't get down, no one's going to, no one's helping you down. So that, that's kind of, I think that's the reason. But when I think about it, you know, it took, it took me seven weeks to get to the top. And from the time I was on the summit till the time I was in Kathmandu was 30 hours. Wow. So... I went very, there was a couple of us that went down extremely quick. I think that comes from my Newfoundland background and really wanting a beer, but uh, <laughs> you run down almost and it's, uh, it, it can be daunting. You have no real safety when, when you go down. And I, I think as well, it's the mentality thing. You know, I, I reflect back now and, you know, when you, when you go up, you have, you have uh, equipment and without getting too technical, you know, you have equipment that will stop you from falling, that you pull against and obviously on the rope. But when you go down, you can't have that because you, you won't go down. Exactly. You're going the opposite um, way. Of course, there are, there are certain types of rope knots that you can tie in a rope. But if you want to do that every time you're at, the, at an anchor, you'd be going down forever. So I think a lot of people take risks, and including myself. You know, I, I, you know when I got lower and lower, I was, barely, you know, I was putting one, one carabiner on. And, you know, if I fell, I was going to the next anchor. So I was falling like 200 meters. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, that, that's a bad injury if it happens. So I, I think it's just, I think it's a bit the mentality and a little bit, you kind of get lackadaisical as you go down because you're so tired. It's, uh, 
you know, I think the last day for me was 28 hours of with two breaks. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a long day and you, you kind of just get more sick of it as you go. Can you talk about the day that you finally made it to the top? I know there was obviously a ton of weather around those few weeks there. And, and you had mentioned as well um, that, you know, there was really only a, a certain time frame that you could really get, get up there. Um, can you talk about that, that final real push and, and maybe what the feeling was like when you had finally, you know, you, you finally got there. You're like, uh, I mean, I've seen the picture of you, man. You look ecstatic. Like, you know, it looks like that you just won a championship, which is the equivalent of that. I'm assuming, you know what I mean? That's exactly what that is. So yeah, just talk a little bit about, you know, once you finally dig it up there and, 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 and those final, you know, kind of few hours with the weather and, 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 and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I think, uh, you know, the, the last day was, or that last, those last few steps was interesting for me because I, you know, in the beginning I, I got over to Hillary step and, when you, go, when you go from there, uh, if you know what that is, it's, it's about 100 meters below the summit. And, and then it's, you know, it's, it's pretty straight up and it, it's very exposed. I mean, if you, if the side is like three kilometers down, right? I mean, there's no stopping. And, but what I remember of that is almost flat walk. I don't really remember that verticality at all. I was just focused on the top and I wasn't tired. I knew I was going to make it. It was really weird. It was opposite of what it was described to me, but. I also remember those last steps and I think it's been really publicized with my dad and stuff. So I was really thinking about him and I was almost crying half the way to the top. And then when I got to the top, I had, you know, I was really, really like, as you say, just ecstatic. You know, I worked towards it for like six years. It was a, it was a project. So, you know, that, that feeling. And then, you know, it was, what was really funny, I think about it was I I had this GPS system and a lot of people followed, followed me on it. And, you know, the way it worked, it's this, it almost looks like a phone from, 1998 right it's this analog you need to use the arrows to send a text but you can text on it so i had this plan when i got to the summit that i was going to text my my dad my girlfriend and my best friend to kind of and he could give give the news out right uh, that, that i'd made it and so it's not like it has the names in it you have to know remember the numbers and so when I, when I opened up this GPS, what I found out after it was like VOCM and all these places had actually publicized that link. And I had something like 400 messages and I was trying to scroll down to find. Oh no. I pre-written a message to these people sure. so I could just quickly do it while my hands were out of my gloves. And, and, uh, and I was there trying to scroll down, find it and all this kind of stuff. It was a disaster. But uh, but anyways, I managed to do it, and uh, and and it was good. And I can't complain about that many people messaging me, but it was definitely a surprise. So I just remember being so confused. You you you, you can't really think. I mean, they you know they talk about the death zone. You're basically dying up there, and it uh, <laughs> it took me like three or four minutes to really realize who are these people and why do I have so many messages? Like, where did they get these numbers? And I just I remember going from this like really like crying happy to being ecstatic to just being so confused for like three or four minutes. Yeah, I mean, I was following along on that as well. I mean, on on the on the GPS, and I remember, <laughs> I actually remember it pretty vividly, man. I, like you say, I, you know, I know you pretty well, and I just an incredible feat, obviously, no doubt. And I remember thinking to myself that day, I was like sitting down watching Sports Center, and I'm like, "Fucking Ballard is on the top of Everest right now," and I'm sitting on my couch watching Sports Center, man. Like, <laughs> no, it's that's crazy, man. How long were you actually up on this at the summit for? How long did you actually spend up there? I, I can't really remember, but it was no more than like 12 minutes. It's just right. so cold. I mean, it, you know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, he spends so much time. But uh, I mean, it is freezing cold. It, it's not that. And I guess you could see from the picture, you know, I, I to this day, I really kicked myself that I had the Newfoundland flag. Backwards, I noticed but that, I, yeah. I knew it was. I was fully conscious of it. And in my mind, I just said, I don't care. It was yeah. so windy. I was like. I, I was actually thinking like, oh, I'll Photoshop that when I get back. And meanwhile, I have no idea how to Photoshop it. So that was a great story. But, uh, but I was sitting there like physically like, I can't physically turn this around. It's too windy. I'm too cold. I don't care. Just throw it in the backpack and went on back. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think no more than 10 minutes. Oh man, it's uh, crazy, crazy, crazy. I can't imagine. Yeah, like just the uh, the wind and the cold and 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 the exhaustion. I'm I'm assuming you must have been feeling probably, or were you exhilarated? You probably don't even feel that, and probably until you're really down out of it a bit, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, for for me, I mean, you're on such a high at that point. It, I did not feel tired at literally, all. I literally, literally, and I, figuratively, yeah. Yeah, it was it was quite crazy that the that feeling. You feel like uh, you can just run it in. I mean, it, it kind of comes down pretty quickly because you know that line, that that, that kind of that famous line. I didn't hate, hit it on the way up. Uh, we were one of the first on the summit that day, but. Uh, we hit it on the way down. So it came down pretty quick and we had to wait for that. And uh, of course that kind of de, de exhilarates it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then you start kind of get the, 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 the cold and the, and the tiredness starts creeping in, but I mean, you got to get through that and just, just keep going. What was the feeling like when you finally got back to like civilization after seven weeks of that? <laughs> the, the, the funny part was what, you know, I got into Kathmandu and then I had, uh, I had booked this like, um, flexible flight and then all this kind of stuff and then they, it, typical airlines they couldn't move it for like five days so i actually didn't end up getting home till almost a week later but uh you know my girlfriend came i, I love like movie popcorn and pizzas and she had both like in the car ready for me when i when i got home so that was pretty cool and then it was a a pretty big rip with my buddies for a couple of weeks and I basically all the fitness that i had i had put into like six months was gone within <laughs> about a week and a half <laughs> oh that's awesome man um yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much that's you know you you nailed it there. It was incredible, man. Uh, I just thank you so much for coming on and, and really telling your story. Uh, you know, that's the one thing I, I've been trying to do with with these podcasts is I'm just trying to feature like interesting and unique people from the province and uh, or people who have spent time in the province and uh, and you're definitely one of them. Do you got any big plans for the future, Mark? Anything else you're crazy that's coming up or is it is it tough with 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 the COVID situation or maybe even in a few years, do you have anything lined up or planning on doing? Are you gonna like so not, box, nothing, are you gonna like box, on, are you gonna box a gorilla or something? <laughs> <laughs> No, nothing on paper at the moment, but uh, nothing physically booked. But the one I, I think the one thing I'm kind of eyeing at the moment, you know, I do a lot of this uh, ski touring, this randonnée skiing, where you uh, you put like the skins on, you climb up and you ski down. So uh, I do that quite a bit here in Norway. It's quite a popular thing. I think it's actually pretty normal here. But uh, I, I want to combine that with an 8,000 meter mountain. I don't, I'm not sure if there's any. I had to double check this one as well. He said that, but I don't think any Canadians have ever skied an 8,000 meter mountain. So. Uh, it's a bit ambitious. I'm not sure if I can do it, but uh, but that's what I've been thinking about. I'm not sure if I'll do it. Don't quote me on it, but uh, <laughs> but it's at least one of the cards. And then the other one I, I've thought about is the same skiing thing, but in Antarctica. So a couple of me and my buddies have been talking about doing the same thing, doing some ski touring uh, on a, off a boat in Antarctica. So not the usual stuff, but I don't think I'm the usual traveler either. So those are probably the two big ones. No, nah, you're, you're not hitting the resort in Cuba for a week or anything, calling it crazy. I mean, good times there too. Don't get me wrong. I, t- I tell you what, after a year in COVID, I wouldn't complain about that one either. No, me neither, man. Like uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. I was saying, you know, I've been to Mexico like, you know, nine years in a row or something like down there and, I mean, it was kind of neat to have a, a little break, but I mean, I, I would take that in a heartbeat right now just to just to, to get out and uh, see a few different things and stuff like that. Uh, once again, Mark, uh, thanks so much, man. Really, really appreciate you taking the time today uh, and coming on and telling a bit of your story. Um, best of luck with everything, man. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up with you sooner than later. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for having me. All right, buddy. We'll chat with you soon. Huge thanks to Mark Ballard for coming on, taking some time from uh, his home over Norway. Uh, I reached out to Mark there last week and asked if he'd like to come on. And, you know, as he's a great guy, really, really uh, nice to talk to. And it was nice to catch up with him and, and hear all about his adventures. This guy is just nuts, like 94 countries he's been to and just done some crazy, crazy stuff. I mean, you know, on top of all the other stuff, he, he climbed Mount Everest. I mean... Uh, I have I have a hard time climbing up Springdale Street sometimes. I mean, <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was just a you know crazy crazy feat. And I loved hearing all about that and just some of the weirds and, and and tough and hard situations that he found himself in during that. And you know, it was amazing to me to to hear that how long it takes to do this. And you know, it's so long just to even get the base camp i mean it's two weeks to get to base camp and it's 65k i mean like i like i mentioned in, in the in the uh in the interview it's essentially like hiking to whitburn if if you're from newfoundland you know i mean it's <laughs> i can't imagine that's just to get to the bottom 
So uh, yeah, big thanks to Mark Ballard for coming out, and guys, it was uh, he he was awesome, and uh, really loved having that conversation. Um, yeah, I mean that does it for me, really, pretty much. Back uh, back got a couple of gigs this weekend. Thursday, I'm at Golf Shots in Mount Pearl. Friday, I'm at the Bull and Barrel. And uh, Sunday night, I'm back at Greensleeves doing the Sunday evening gig uh, all summer long at, at Sleeves. So, yeah, you can catch me there on Sundays and, you know, wherever else, uh, as long as all these, uh, all, all the, COVID, uh, the COVID stuff and it stays at bay. And, and hopefully we don't get any more big outbreaks and we can kind of kind of get through this thing now with the, with the vaccine program kind of rolling out and, and that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that does it for me, guys. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in again. Uh, I'm going to try to keep the podcast rolling. I might dial it back in the summertime, maybe to once every two weeks, just because it's going to be a little bit busier. And uh, I find it a little bit difficult trying to, uh, to take the time to to edit these. And it, it takes quite a while to get the editing down and, and all that stuff. So I'm still looking for a sponsor. If you want to sponsor this podcast, you know how to how to get a hold of me. I mean, don't take much. I, I would take I'll take anything at this point. If you're looking to come on board and I'll, I'll give you a couple ad reads and, and we can chat about uh, your business or whatever, whatever you may. Uh, yeah, that's about does it for me, guys. Thanks again for tuning in, and uh, we'll catch up with you next week. Peace.